This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. By some estimates, people speak an average of 7,000 words a day. Of course, that varies widely depending on your job, your position, your family, and even your personality. To a talker like me, 7,000 is probably on the low side. But regardless of how many words you're speaking each day, we are all taking in a lot of information. In fact, research suggests that the average person hears between 20,000 and 30,000 words a day. Add to all of that your Slack, your email, your social media communications, not to mention articles, TV shows, and podcasts, and you're bound to either miss a lot or get a lot wrong. So it's no wonder that we have such a problem understanding each other and being understood. Miscommunication at work can be more than just an inconvenience to getting things done. It can be detrimental to building and maintaining relationships, which can mean losing employees if you're a manager or losing opportunities for advancement for employees. So how can we make sure that we are understood and how can we become better listeners? To help me answer those questions and more is Dr. Tomas Chamaro Premizic, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at Manpower Group, a professor of business psychology at the University of College London and Columbia University, a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and Fast Company, and the author of several books. Tomas has also been a guest on the show before. Thank you so much for joining me again. It's always good to be here. Thank you for having me. So one of the biggest reasons for miscommunication at work and just kind of in life in general is that many people are not good listeners. How can people, first of all, know if they're a good listener? And second, how can they improve their listening skills? Yeah, so obviously this presents a paradoxical question whereby if you're not good at listening, you're not going to listen that <laughs> you're not good at listening, right? So <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, and on the other hand, those who are good don't need any help, but they're the ones that get better. But I think in general, it's the starting point should be about really thinking about how you're managing people. What are your relationships like with your bosses, with your colleagues, if you manage people with others. And if you see a recurrent or persistent theme whereby you have conflict, other people annoy you, you can't predict what other people want or say, and you struggle with basic interpersonal social skills, then a good starting point is to assess yourself. And the only way to do that, really, the only way is to ask questions about how you're doing to others and really open up and listen. One of the things I always hear about being a good listener versus, you know, what most people kind of do is the whole like listening to respond versus listening to understand. Can you break that down a little bit? And like when when somebody is talking, what should you be doing? Yeah. So, you know, this is why the first step should be your focus, to change your focus. Too many times, perhaps because of pressures to uh, manage impressions and seem smart at work, even when we're asking somebody a question, we're thinking about the next thing we're gonna say and you know whether we can say something that makes our reputation uh, seem amazing or wonderful. So I think both when you ask a question to others and when you're not asking a question but others are volunteering information, really focus on that person. Focus on what they're saying, interpret what they may 
be trying to say language is very complex and sophisticated. So people very, very rarely in any culture really say what they mean and mean what they say. It's about interpreting and having some context. And if you don't know, which is very, very normal, because most of the time we think we know when we don't, just ask follow-up questions. Do you mean this? Did you mean that? Are you trying to tell me that? And don't be afraid to come across as insecure or unconfident just because you're asking questions, because ultimately these are the things that are going to make you stronger in the long run and going to help you assess your reputation at work. So really focusing on others and asking questions, but also listening when people are volunteering information to you and giving you this gift that feedback is, is the starting point. Yeah. And it's, you know, and one of those those pieces of advice is always, you know, kind of similar to what you're saying is is to repeat back almost what they're saying, right? Is like, it sounds like you're saying this. Is that right? Because there's a big, as you said, there's usually a big chasm between what you're trying to say and what you actually mean, right? That's absolutely uh, true. And I think while it is really helpful and important to repeat back something to the person to double check, Something that might even be more helpful is to ask open-ended questions. Because when I'm asking you, did you really mean to say this? That's still a yes or no question. I'm a fan of questions that are not leading questions, especially questions that are not rhetorical questions. I often say, you know, if you want feedback from your colleagues on how you did an assignment, don't tell them, wasn't this amazing? Or did you (laughs) like how I did it? Or uh, wasn't it great? But ask them, what did you think about this? And if you actually want to probe for critical, constructive, helpful feedback, just ask them, how would you have done this better? If you were in my situation, what are the two or three things that you would have done differently? And show them that you are thick-skinned enough and resilient and gritty that you can actually take some criticism. And then, of course, when they provide you with critical, helpful feedback, don't retaliate, don't fight back, don't be aggressive, but actually say, listen, this is really, really helpful. I appreciate it. I know it's not easy for you to criticize me, but it's only going to make me better. And if I can do something for you along the lines, please let me help you. Yeah, that's a great point is that how you phrase the question is kind of what answer you're looking for, right? <laughs> as you said, like, I did a great job, don't you think? Like, there's really only one answer as to, as opposed to what can I do to improve? You're giving that that kind of invitation there. Along those lines, you know, another way that that miscommunication can happen at work is like what you're saying is like when you kind of assume that your directions or your intentions or what your real meaning was, was obvious, but it wasn't. Do you have any advice on how people can be clear communicators so they can make sure that they're understood that what they assume people know that they're actually getting that across? Yeah. So this is about really understanding that you can almost never, never over-communicate. And if you do, don't worry, it is far better than under-communicating or than being a little bit ambiguous or ambivalent. So even if you know that you said something multiple times, don't be afraid to repeat it. And of course, if you can say it in multiple different ways so that it sticks in some way, you're going to be way better off than if you just assume that people know this. And this is really important advice for anybody who manages people. A lot of managers, you know, I work with a lot of leaders and managers either in my coaching practice or um, in my research, and they often 
assume that their teams, their employees, their direct reports have a perfect understanding of what they want. They assume that they know what the strategy is, what the direction is. They assume that poor performers, for example, are aware of the fact that they are poor performers. And this is how all these uncomfortable and avoidable situations happen at the end of the year when people are surprised by the feedback they get and managers are surprised by their employees being surprised by the feedback they get. So I think really following up and saying, is this clear to you? Do you have any questions? Is there anything that you don't understand? Could you explain it to me so that I'm sure that you understood it? And then listening in uh, will avoid so many issues, so many problems and, and so much friction at work. You know, it, it is a cliche, but also a fact that a large percentage of conflicts and problems and problematic situations that we encounter at work could be solved with better communication and communication could almost always be improved if people listened more. And when you say that managers or just people in general when communicating should repeat things in multiple ways, is there kind of the best approach to that so that you're not feeling like a broken record? Like, should you follow up with written communication? Is there a way to kind of make sure that that, that information sinks in without <laughs> being annoying about it? So the best way uh, is always the case with any kind of behavior that is relevant to management or leadership. The best rule is meet people where they want to be met. Personalize, understand who you have in front of you. And ideally, don't just use one kind of, you know, uh, method for everybody, but understand individual preferences. So it might be that somebody in your team pays more attention in in-person meetings for those of you who are still having in-person meetings, of course, because we know they decreased a lot over the past couple of years. But it might be that it really cements and it really sinks if you're having an in-person conversation, a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that person. And I don't care if it's at the cafe, at a bar, at the office, but if you know that the important way to cement the message and consolidate is there, then do it there. It might be that other people like Slack, other people might like WhatsApp, other people might like a virtual Zoom or Teams meeting. Um, I would say it is rarely the case that uh, email bombardment and having you know 50 people CC it with a long message, even if it's in bold or yellow or with you know special effects, will sink in because by definition, if you see an email and there's more than three or four other people CC there, you know it's not personal and you know it's not for you. So you know with the email bombardment that you receive, it's easy to ignore. So I think basically. If you want for people to understand something, you have to minimize the number of excuses, minimize the number of kind of misunderstandings, and you have to really take the time to personalize the message so that it's really as effective as it could be. And, you know, even if you manage five or 10 people, there is no excuse. It is your job and you really should make the effort so that it's clear. And one final thing I would say is simplify. Don't make it too complex. There's, you know, rarely situations where people can retain more than two or three things. So I'm a big fan of two bullet points, three bullet points. Then you can expand and add more detail, granularity, etc. But simplify it and make it really, really easy for people to understand and remember. That's a great point, too, about email, you know, and when you say there's more than one person on it, I think, yeah, that tendency is like, oh, well, it's for multiple people. I don't need to pay attention to it as much. It's not for me in particular. Like other people will handle it, right? 
Right. And I think we know is the same with Zoom meetings or Teams meetings or whatever platform you use. If there are 15 people there and already six, seven are not on camera and the others are there, but pretending to pay attention, right, then uh, don't be surprised if they're actually watching Netflix or doing something else in the background. Well, and you know, that that makes me think of this other question that I had that when I think about communicating with a group, it, it comes up all the time. It's something that, you know, happens a lot in meetings. I call it the cricket effect. It's like where the leader shares a lot of information, asks if there's any questions, or if it's a brainstorm meeting, you know, it's like looking for ideas and so it like opens it up to the room, whether it's in person or especially, I think, you know, as you say, like over Zoom where you can be multitasking. And it's just crickets. Nobody says anything. Like, do you have, I presented you with all this information. Do you have any questions? Nobody says anything. Like, I need some ideas. Who wants, you know, who has any ideas? Absolutely nothing. How can leaders prompt more discussions in situations like that, where it's like a big group and most likely people will think, oh, somebody else will speak up. I can just be quiet. So the first thing to acknowledge is that actually, even though those situations are very uncomfortable and nobody likes to encounter them, actually, it's a sign of progress because at least you have created that situation. Too many people are running meetings where they don't even ask a question for there to be silence. So, you know, they don't even know that people aren't paying attention. So if at least you post and you ask a question, there is hope and there is room for progress. You know, I sometimes half facetiously or provocatively or ironically say, listen, this is not very, very difficult. At the end of the day, it's not rocket science. If you want to be a better listener, there's three steps. One, shut up. Two, listen. Three, repeat. And if you actually have cricket silence or radio silence, it means you manage to shut up and ask a question. Now, if people aren't talking, you shouldn't be annoyed. You shouldn't get anxious or ex you, know, you shouldn't be excitable. And there should be no drama Pause again, maybe use humor, ask a joke, warm it up a little bit, ask the question again, and then at least in that instance, somebody will probably come up and make the effort to say something and you shouldn't cancel them or be unhappy with the response because at the end, they're, at the end of the day, they're trying. More often than not, those situations of silence come because people are surprised as well. So one of the things that you can do if you're running a meeting, whether it's in person or virtually, is to have a cadence is to have a pattern. It's far better for a manager to be predictable than unpredictable. You know, people love this idea that unpredictability equates uh, creativity, innovation, and it's a sign of complexity. But most of the people in the world, most employees, want to be able to predict what their boss is about to do, much like students in class want to predict what their teacher is about to do. So if you say, listen, uh, I know it was a little bit uncomfortable and tricky and awkward today when I asked these questions and nobody said anything, so probably you know, I wasn't clear. From now on, how about we do this in the meetings? I start giving a very short summary. I pause and then I'm going to go around and each of you is going to ask a question or make a comment. Then I'm going to answer. And you basically engineer a process. You create a process that actually incentivizes people for paying attention, for listening, for participating and removes the surprise effect and also doesn't end up or digress into just the same small number of outgoing, overconfident extroverts mansplaining things while the other people are either quiet or really annoyed that this meeting is a waste of time. 
Yes. Oh, my God. That's such great advice. And I'm so glad you pointed out that there is in any company, any group of people, there's always the two or three that are the talkers. And I will cop to being one of those people. But yeah, I think that's great that that expectation that this is going to happen. So you're prepared to answer. You're prepared to brainstorm. You're prepared to ask a question because you're right. I think that like, oh my God, all of a sudden you want me to talk. I was like half listening and, and didn't know this this was an expectation of me. That's a that's a great advice. Exactly. I think ultimately if people are not paying attention or they're multitasking in a meeting is because you're not running it properly, right? And it starts with doing the basics, right? People should know what the purpose is. Is this just a communication? If so, why does it require a meeting, which you know absorbs people's calendar time, et cetera? If they need to prepare, what do they need to do? If they need to say something, they should know in advance. And they should at least know what the kind of grammar or syntax is of the meeting so that they contribute. And sometimes, you know, you don't have to split uh, the time evenly, two minutes each, but you can say, okay, we are rotating. And every week, somebody will have a different role in the meeting and do something. But anyway, at the end of the day, if you're speaking more than your team and the other people in the meeting, you're probably not doing your job and you're probably not listening enough. Yeah, that's a very good point. If it's just, then it's just a monologue, right? It's just everybody come and listen to my monologue and you're likely going to get people to disengage. That's a great point. Yeah, there should be a difference between being either a podcaster or a stand-up comedian and somebody running a meeting. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes managers are confused and they think that a meeting is an opportunity to have an audience and to express their ideas and to then have some signs of admiration or positive feedback, which unsurprisingly end up being fake signs of admiration and positive feedback. <laughs> oh, yes. So great. So great. Good for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I wanted to ask about tone because you know i'm i'm thinking so much of our communication is written now you know over slack over email but just unless you're in a in a meeting most of the way that we communicate with our colleagues is written communication and tone is so hard to communicate in written communication is there a way to express tone effectively when you're writing yeah, this is, and you know, I'm thinking here, my colleague and friend, Erica Dewan has written a book called Digital Body Language. So the title is very easy to kind of, which came out a year ago or so. And she really, really highlights how problematic it is to communicate online and especially in written form. Listen, I think the best example of this is that even when you are communicating with your closest friends, over WhatsApp or text message or whatever, and you have, you know, hours and hours of weekly communication, there will still be misunderstanding. You still have to ask, what did you really mean? What did you do this? Did you do that? And it doesn't matter if you use emoji or words or exclamation signs or GIFs or memes or whatever, there's still miscommunications. And these are people who you care about a lot and who you know really well and who know you very, very well. So too many problems happen when we are because of the perceived kind of uh, productivity improvements or efficiency of just writing one email where we communicate and say things, we try to say or convey important information of an email. It's so easy to misinterpret versus just being face-to-face -face with somebody or even on a Teams or Zoom meeting with somebody in camera and really being able to communicate both verbally and non-verbally. If I write a statement to you in an email, uh, that's going to convey maybe 20% of the information that you get if I'm 
saying that statement while looking at you and you can see me, right? And this is why, you know, sometimes there is a tricky kind of thing of saying something positive while not seeming very positive with your body language, which is so important when it's feedback, right? If, if I tell you an email, fine by me, this was okay, etc., I'm going to be so ambivalent that I'm going to let it up to your ego and your personality to fill in the blanks and interpret everything. So if you think you're amazing, you're going to say, oh, my boss really liked what I did. And if you're very self-critical and have imposter syndrome, you're going to say, oh, my God, what's that? But so follow up with clarifications. If you're the recipient of information, never respond or assume that you got the message. If it's important, try to follow up with a call, with a video call, with an in-person meeting and say, do you mind if I ask some questions about your message? And likewise, if you're conveying that information, don't assume it's going to be interpreted correctly or understood. The potential for misunderstanding, especially when you're talking about the person himself or herself, is huge. And, you know, it's, it's probably more likely that it's misunderstood than understood correctly. And you mentioned emojis, and there was recently a couple of articles about this, about generational use, like how Gen Z uses emojis in a very different way than older generations do and interprets emojis in a different way. And we actually had a big conversation about it at, at Fast Company in our Slack about the differences. And I think you kind of got at this when you're like, fine by me in an email. Evidently, there are many different interpretations if you say, okay, versus K versus KK, like that people think you're being sarcastic or you're being aggressive. But emoji use and that kind of shorthand is core to how so many of us communicate. Is there a way to navigate emoji use and that kind of informal communication since it's just so core to how we communicate? And is there a way to navigate that kind of more effectively or make sure you're not open for misinterpretation? So look, you know, on the one hand, it's amazing that emoji can convey such rich information. And in a way, you know, they're clearly the digital equivalent of what our ancestors used to do in caves when they just wrote, you know, with symbols. They look very similar. Same for, you know, the more complex kind of uh, interactive GIFs or memes, etc. I mean, it's amazing that a one item or symbol response can really nail it, sometimes better than 100 words. On the other hand, we have to understand that this is happening in the context of email messaging, information saturation. You're probably paying you know, attention with 1% of your focus is there. You're responding while reading something else, while watching something else, while thinking about something else, etc. So you probably already didn't absorb all the information accurately, and then you're responding, right? So I think the most important thing to ask yourself is, First of all, how well do you know the person that is you know, communicating with you? Uh, secondly, how well does the person know you? I mean, you know, if you're using, even without going to the extreme of emoji, but if you're using smile symbols or exclamation marks or you know, a lot of symbols in email and the person doesn't know you, they might immediately assume that you are either too informal, too uh, childish, uh, you know, too submissive, assertive, etc. So I think understanding how well you know the person and how well the person knows you is the first thing. And secondly, again, is look for consistency. If there is any inconsistency in a pattern, etc., pause and ask for clarification, because more likely it's a symptom that you haven't been paying attention as the saying goes, if you're not confused, you're not paying attention, right? 
But at the same time, it's very, very unlikely that the person you're interacting with suddenly completely changed their personality and went from being either very friendly to being very aggressive or vice versa. And, you know, this is how things escalate and get out of control very, very quickly. Typing the wrong word or the wrong sign at the wrong moment to the wrong person can really, really kill a relationship that you may have invested a long time in improving or creating. That's a good point. And I, you know, and I have heard, especially I think younger employees that use uh, emoji use in like different ways with their peers than they obviously would with their boss or their other colleagues. And it's kind of this like code switching, right? Of like, oh, this person, this is the way I communicate with them. They'll understand it. They'll get this shorthand. I need to adjust that for this other person who is going to interpret, who's not going to understand it or interpret it in a, in a different way. Yeah. And, you know, I think this might sound obvious, but the main thing that is missing when you're interacting with somebody in any digital or virtual means is their reaction. And seeing how people react to what we say is actually a critical way to understanding what we actually said. Because I might think that I said something nice, but if I see that you're a little bit shocked or surprised or you seem wounded, I might realize that my words convey something else. Likewise, you know, I'm, I might be thinking that I'm really kick-ass and very critical and, you know, ruthless providing you with tough feedback. And maybe I'm so soft and conflict avoidant that you're actually, oh, this is, you know, not bad. So I think when you eliminate feedback altogether, you really take out a fundamental chunk or portion of the communication. And that's what's missing. And that's why even the old school kind of phone call for people who still, you know, remember what that is or even know what that is, is important because you can pause your voice confers a lot of information, your inflections, your tone, your volume, you can interrupt me, you can express, you know, happiness, surprise, joy, uh, disgust, all these emotions way beyond the words that you're using. And if it's just words or emoji, it should only really be used and especially abused in informal situations. And even then, you know, I think people are often unaware of uh, how their words impact others. If you have a Slack or a WhatsApp or a messaging group where there's 15, 20, 30 other people and you make a comment that is, you know, you think funny but politically incorrect and, you know, you think positions you as assertive, dominant, spontaneous, authentic, smart, but you don't even remember who's on the other side and you don't see the reactions. It's very, very easy to break people's feelings. Yeah, that's true. And and I think as you're saying this, it's like all of those methods are to try to make up for all of the emotion and the tone that you get in actual verbal communication. But I'm I'm really glad you brought up interrupting because it's something I'm very curious to get your take on. I interrupt a lot. And I read this explanation of it once as conversational layering. It's, you know, when I, when I interrupt somebody, it's because I get what they're saying and I want to add to it and I want to kind of keep the momentum going. And it's, you know, we're kind of gelling and we're getting each other. But, you know, obviously there's bad ways to interrupt and other people have, you know, strong reactions to interruptions. What, what's your feeling on interrupting in communication? So I think, you know, on the one hand, it's part of, the spontaneity and and the natural kind of flow of a communication. And I think if we're not in a professional meeting, if we're not doing a podcast, if we're not, you know, there'll be a lot of interruptions and they're fine, you know? I mean, if we are 
at a dinner party or in a bar or something and we're excited or passionate about what we're discussing, whether it's sports, music, politics, whatever, we probably interrupt ourselves a lot. And actually that enhances or lubricates the communication because it's a way of kind of agreeing and moving on or quickly disagreeing and moving on, you know, to the next level. Having said that, interruptions can also be the result of uh, being self-centered or being very arrogant, of kind of being very impatient at best, even if you're not very arrogant. But ultimately, uh, the more you interrupt, the less likely it is that other people appreciate having a conversation with you, especially when they're trying to express something that might be difficult, nuanced, take some time. Um, but I always say, just like we are recording this now, you know, we're recording this by voice only, but we're looking at ourselves because that really helps us understand when we can interrupt, how we receive the information, and all these interruptions are a lot kind of uh, less harmful and even potentially more beneficial if we are face-to-face -face or if we're at least looking at each other because you can, you can give signs, you know, of whether... The person has interrupted too much or too little because just like excessive interruptions are problematic excessive silences are problematic as well and we want to avoid those yeah that's a great point too is getting the read on the person if you're interrupting and they're like yeah 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 and keep kind of going and it it like escalates it kind of as you said like moves the conversation along that's a good interruption if you're interrupting them and they just like shut down and like hmm, you just stepped on my toes basically you stepped on my words that's a kind of a bad interruption so it's really kind of paying attention to the person that you're you know having a conversation with right yeah and of course you know there's probably an upside to interruptions which we should acknowledge is that they do make the interrupter or the person seem genuine right and spontaneous i mean if i'm interrupting you at least you know you know i'm engaged you know you have my atten my attention even if i'm desperate to tell you what i think and not desperate to listen right and i think we shouldn't forget that right there's too many people who when you're talking to them it seems like they have been excessively coached on impression management and on how to seem like a great communicator. It's almost like they're over-applying Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence <laughs> people. So they always let you finish, and then they say, great, that was fantastic, <laughs> Kate. Can you say more about that? And then they pause, and it's like, you know... Like an interview, but not like a modern podcast, but like one of these kind of 1970s or 1980s scripted television interviews. And, you know, that's not fun, those, those conversations, because if it doesn't seem genuine and spontaneous, you don't know whether you can trust the other person. You don't know if you can trust anything they're saying. And you also don't know if they care about what you're saying. So I think a certain level of passion um, should be welcome and will always come with some interruptions and some of these kind of noisy imperfections and, and the kind of grittiness of raw conversations, which are not to be reproduced and played to other people, but that seem very, very easy to be immersed in and that can generate this kind of natural flow. Yeah, that's a great point of conversations where you're not like, okay, I talk, now you listen, then you talk, then I listen, where it's just everybody's been in those great conversations, right? And then they take, and I think like the best ones kind of take tangents and it makes you think of this other thing and then you go in this other way and then you're like, oh, we ended up like coming up with all of these great ideas or thinking about things differently because we just talked and listened and really were engaged with each other as it, as it was taking place. 
that's the ideal, right? That's the ideal. And, you know, perhaps the, the ideal never, the ideal never happens, but I think you can get closer to it and really further away. And this is something anybody can reflect on. Like when you finish interacting with someone, how did you feel about that experience? And what do you think made it a positive communication experience or a negative communication experience? Yeah, that's a great point. Well, I could have this conversation forever, but I think I will will end it here. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Do you consider yourself a good listener? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. And don't forget to listen to our special four-part series, Ambition Diaries, in this feed. You can also head to fastcompany.com slash ambition hyphen diaries for photos, interviews, and audio clips from all seven mothers and daughters in the series. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Mm-hmm.